You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Andrew Stone. Well, Andrew, thank you for joining us for a conversation. Thank you. About economics. I have a great interest in economics. I was very committed to economic reform in government. I still think it's incredibly important, but I'm not a professional like you. You're a very highly qualified economist. Tell me a little about yourself, and then I'm going to ask you, what's the point of good economic management? A little about yourself first. Sure. Okay. Well, it's kind of you to say I'm very well qualified because actually in, my actual background is not actually in economics. I'm actually a mathematician by training originally, but I've worked as an economist for about 25 years now. Uh, so I, I have a graduate diploma in economics, but um, but my main training is having worked for a bit over five years for the Commonwealth Treasury and a bit over 10 years for the Reserve Bank. And then I had the great privilege to work for uh, almost five years as the chief economist to Tony Abbott, the as opposition leader and then as prime minister. Uh, and so that gave me exposure to a very wide array of different areas of um, public policy and economics. Uh, and that's, I guess, where I've you know, picked up my, my training uh, largely uh, in, in practical sense. And as what are the policies that will actually help to improve the operation of the Australian economy and actually help the Australian people. Because we're talking about your book, Restoring Hope, the very title tells you that you think economics is not just about a sweet set of numbers. It's about producing, as you put it, hope. Why does economics matter to the person in the street? Oh, well, it matters tremendously because it, it is so um, influential about the opportunities that people have and the, the scope they have to, to do all the things that they would like to do, to, to be all the things that they would like to be. Uh, so this is a, a point that, you know, in a theoretical sense, economists are always talking about, the, you know, they would say technically the distinction between utility and output and so forth, all these differences between you know, how valuable something is versus the, the you know, specific way in which you measure dollar output. So that's well understood at a theoretical level, but I think it's often forgotten actually by um, both by economists and more generally in the public debate that you know, we're not trying to grow the economy because we want to get a good set of GDP figures or because we're proud if the number has, you know, the annual growth figure has a three in front of it instead of a two. There's a purpose to that, which is that, after all, if, if people want to be able to raise a family, if they want to give their kids the best possible opportunities, if they want to, to be able to make the most of themselves, then they, they need to be able to get a good job, uh, to have an income, to be able to pay for that, that, those educational opportunities to help their kids do the things that they want to do. And even then, you'd say even more fundamentally with things like jobs, that's actually often a way in which you provide, you know, a lot of people find a great deal of purpose and meaning in their life and the discipline and so forth that helps them to, to have a full and satisfying life through work. So um, if you have a situation where the economy is not functioning well, where unemployment is high, where people find it difficult to find jobs, or where if they find a job, the wages are very low and it means they're constantly struggling just to make ends meet, that cramps their opportunities. It, it, it makes life very difficult. There, uh, <clears throat> there are those who subscribe, and I think... I'm probably one of them who thinks that there was a period of really exceptional economic management in Australia and to be bipartisan, it really extended from the election of the Hawke government until, say, 2005, 6, 7, when the great financial crisis started to rock everything. Coincidentally, we took, I think, the eyes off the ball, our eyes off the ball here in Australia. But during that period, massive economic reform sometimes strongly resisted, transformed the Australian economy. I think, though, with very good results for Australians, and I think Australians appreciate that that was a period of good management. How do you see that period? 
Oh, I think that's broadly right. I mean, I think the, the quality of uh, economic policy advice so forth has always varied from, from year to year and decade to decade. The, uh, you know, in the post-war period, the men's era was a pretty good policy period, but then through the 70s, uh, latter part of the 60s and 70s, uh, we went through a, a less good period, I think. Uh, and then I think you're correct to say that the, uh, the, the Australian economy was in considerable uh, structural difficulties, structural, faced considerable structural problems by the, by the early 80s. But there were some significant reforms brought in by the Hawke and Keating governments and some difficult ones. Uh, and so it's to their, to their um, credit that they brought those in. It's also to the credit actually at the time of the opposition that they actually supported a lot of the more difficult reforms there. And that made a big difference in being able to get them enacted. That's a very important point. There was support from the opposition. It wasn't just, we will oppose yeah. for the sake of opposing. Yeah. I think Australians find that very frustrating when they see it. I, I think they do. I mean, I, we, it's, it's important not to over sort of idolise the past. There was all, always a lot of back and forth, a lot of fight over different issues, but it, but it did fundamentally matter that there was a general support and that it actually made it easier, I think, for the Labor Party in some ways to introduce some of those reforms. It still required a lot of guts to introduce some of those key ones. Uh, but it made it easier because they knew they would have, it would be much more difficult for the Liberal Party to oppose those. Uh, and, that, and that was tremendously helpful. And then you roll forward to the period of the Howard government, which of course you know, uh, you know much more intimately connected with, but there were really significant reforms there, particularly in the earlier part of the Howard government, but all through that period uh, in terms of tax reform especially, uh, but also in, in particular in terms of um, budgetary performance. That was tremendously important in the lead up to the financial crisis that, that the Howard government, of which you were a major part for a considerable part, uh, ran 10 budget surpluses out of 12 budgets. That meant we entered that crisis with, without any net Commonwealth debt. In fact, we had about $40 billion in the bank as it were at the Commonwealth level, and that was one of a, an array of factors that was very helpful in, in helping Australia to come through that crisis much better, in much better shape than, than many other countries. I was on what was known as the Razor Gang <clears throat> when we were looking for savings to get rid of the deficits and to pay back the debt. Uh, and I sometimes tell people that we spent three hours one day debating whether the Australian taxpayer was getting value from and should continue with a $90,000 rat baiting program on Norfolk Island. It's an illustration of how finely we went through absolutely everything that Australian taxpayers were supporting. It was very tough work. Um, yet I think it, it, it had a major impact. But <clears throat> how would you describe the Australian economy? Uh, people uh, in this age often demonise the idea of capitalism and of profits. Uh, and, and yet it seems to me that uh, Western democratic capitalism has developed the best levels of freedom and prosperity for people. It's not laissez-faire though, is it? It's not as if it's really let it rip. That's not the way we do things in Australia. So how would you describe our system? Well, I'd say it is fundamentally, it's based on, um, on freedom and the opportunity to try different things. So um, you, you need that freedom so that businesses that have great ideas can set themselves up. And then they, it's, it's great if you can have a new idea and a business can set itself up, make a profit, employ people, pay them good wages. That's a great outcome for everybody. Uh, the idea of saying it's not laissez-faire, that, that more gets, I mean, it's correct to say that, but that more gets to the point that, as again, economists at a theoretical level understand, but seem often, I think, or, or, or too often forget, at a practical level, you have to focus on the particular features of every market. 
to understand the potential risks. Is there a risk in a particular market of monopoly developing or oligopoly? Uh, we see this particularly, I think, in, in the sort of outcomes that have developed in the electricity market where we've had, um, you know, for a raft of reasons, really disastrous outcomes develop over the last 15 years, which have been very damaging both to businesses and to, and to households in terms of escalating electricity and gas prices. Uh, but that's a core example where you, you have to look at this particular structure of the market and the risks that develop there's nothing in free market economics that says you don't have regulation. In fact, at the absolute foundation of a good free market economy is basic regulations about you know, fundamental accounting standards, legal standards, and so forth, so that people can know that they can enter into a contract, that it will be enforced and honoured, that people who are thinking of investing in something know they can trust the numbers on which, on which the, you know, the, the information they're being provided on which they're, they're going to invest. Those are critical in laying a foundation. So, there's no sense in which it's just anything goes. That's, that's not what capitalism or free market economics is about. Uh, it's rather saying we should try to provide those, provide those basic foundations and then, as best as possible, however, leave it to people to figure out their own arrangements and to work out what works best. Because apart from anything else, that's how you get productivity, that's how you get innovation, that's how you get development. So we reject the idea of a centrally planned economy where the government decides yeah. who will do what jobs, yeah. what will be produced, Yes. And almost invariably, yeah. in the end, we need to be pragmatic. Yes. Some yeah. things don't work. Centrally planned economies, so far as I'm aware, I can't think of any examples where, it's, where they've delivered really good outcomes for people. No, no they, they don't. And they, they never good, deliver good economic outcomes. There's an even more fundamental reason, I think, why they're disastrous, which is that, uh, in that phrase of Lord Acton, I think, uh, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, if you, if you provide power to centrally command things, uh, you'll get people who like exercising power over other people and trying to dictate their every, uh, you know, their every like, their every whim, and so forth. So uh, it's a, it's even more disastrous, I think, in terms of the the sort of incentives it creates for people to be tyrants, and that's why almost always when you see centrally planned economies, they become associated with tyrannical regimes. Um, <clears throat> you're deeply invested in economics. I'm invested in history. All good economists understand history, which is what you're reflecting. We need to learn the lessons, what's worked, what hasn't. But a bit more recent history, we talked about that 25 years or so of good management in Australia, had the country well prepared for the global, sometimes called the, the great financial crisis from about 07 on, when it emerged that in fact most Western economies had not been well run at all. Governments had been racking up far too much debt but there's another side to it. It comes to this issue of who regulates what the laws are. I don't think you can avoid the conclusion that a great deal of what happened in the aftermath and the human pain and suffering that resulted from the great financial crisis had to do with the, the loss of prudence, even integrity, by people in the business world. What Lehman Brothers, and uh, you know, that was the big crash that started the whole ball rolling, what they'd been up to was, I think, pretty unconscionable. Uh, there, there was a lot of unconscionable <laughs> behaviour uh, by financial markets. It gets very tricky there also because the trouble is, again, it's what are the incentives that have been built into the system. Um, there was a famous chief executive of one of the big Wall Street um, uh, banks that made a comment, um, uh, Ch Chuck Prince, I think it was, who said, uh, you know, the difficulty is um, when the music's playing, you've got to get up and dance. The, the, yeah. And it, what he was trying to, the centre he was trying to get at there was the idea that it's even if sometimes some of those people realised that some of the risks they were taking were outrageous, so forth. The trouble was that you never knew when this 
cycle, uh, this bubble as it were, was going to end. And if you weren't joining in, taking these risks, doing that, then you would have, you'd find suddenly your shareholders or the you know, other investor would be saying, what's going on? All that lazy capital there and so forth. So uh, I don't say that to excuse some of the unconscionable behavior that went on, but there, the, part of the problem here is to try to address systemically how you remove those incentives that make it very difficult for people to resist that. Um, just to talk about unconscionable behavior though, I think also what has really shocked people, and this is thankfully more true in uh, other countries, particularly Europe and North America that were much, much worse affected by the bad financial behavior and, and also the fallout of that, is what happened after the financial crisis and the way in which a whole lot of firms that had behaved really badly were bailed out. Yeah. Now, this goes to, you know, you're a farmer, you, you will know that, um, I think, you know, often bandied about, but often, often very unfairly bandied about phrase about, um, you know, uh, privatizing the profits and socializing the losses, which would be flung at farmers. But as I said, I think it was often unfair there. But what people, I think, often thought had happened in the aftermath of the financial crisis was that the financiers, uh, the heads of many of the financial market firms in Wall Street and in Europe, uh, had managed to privatize the profits and socialize the losses. Yeah. Uh, it was the extraordinary thing is, you know, if, if you're going to have all these, take all these risks, have all these profits, then you have to suffer the consequences when your firm fails, when those risks don't bear fruit. Uh, but it seemed a whole lot of people were bailed out and uh, indeed the behavior of actually many central banks uh, has had the net effect actually of meaning that a whole, in, in a lot of ways, the people who, who drove many of these bad outcomes have not suffered the consequences of that. Yeah, there were some amazing things that happened. As I understand it, for a while, the American taxpayers owned the biggest motor car company in the world, General Motors. Yeah. It was resolved. But as you say, if you want the right to have a go and succeed, you probably also need the right to fail. And I think there's some very bad lessons learned. The other aspect of it that's really worrying is that a debt crisis was resolved with vastly more debt. And the terrible financial position of many Western countries at the moment means that the next time a shock comes around, their central governments and banks will not be able to do very much to insulate people and to turn it around. Yeah. Well, exactly. This is a worrying thing. And in some ways, just as worrying as the fact that uh, debt in a lot of countries, including Australia, Australia is much better placed still uh, than most European countries or many European countries than North America and so forth. Uh, in terms of, in terms of public debt, it's important to distinguish between household debt, business debt, and public debt and so forth, but if you think of focus on public debt, Australia's much better off. Nevertheless, we have the highest public debt that we've had in at least 50 years, as far back as the budget papers go, as a proportion of the economy. So not just in dollar terms, but as a proportion of the economy, we have so the highest what, public about debt. about 20%? Uh, about 20%, basically. Compared so to, let's say, Great Britain? Uh, Great Britain, I think, is about 80%. US, for, for example, is certainly about 80%. I think Britain's 80, 80, 80 to 90%. Yep. Uh, there are quite a number of countries well over 100% in, in Europe. But there's a really sobering lesson in this because, as you say, we're still relatively well-placed. Uh, when the government that I was yep. part of was swept out in 07, of course, there was money in the bank. Then, there was yes, no debt. No, that's right. We're still relatively well placed. But there's a couple of things we need to note that I think are very concerning. One is that our debt has been growing very rapidly until uh, the recent much better performance by the current government. Uh, the second aspect of it, though, uh, is surely that we're not so terribly far from being on a trajectory where we'd match up with those countries that lost control of it with a nasty shock. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah. If you get in, it, it looks all right. And then suddenly it's not all right. That, that's exactly what happened. Uh, so our figure, that, that figure of 20%, is that's the Commonwealth's net 
debt yes. oh, as loan. a share of the economy. Uh, if you add in the states and public enterprise and so forth, it's, it's, frank, close, it's closer to Particularly Queensland and uh, Western Australia, the resource yeah. states. Uh, yes, yeah. and, and a number of state governments also announced big plans to ramp up their debt, albeit yes. hopefully to be investing in useful assets. Uh, but nevertheless, that, the, the more mainly national figure is about 30%, which is the more properly comparable one to places like America and Europe and so forth. You'd still say that's a lot lower, and that's comforting. Uh, on the other hand, first of all, those countries aren't nearly as dependent on foreign uh, on borrowing, you know, foreign borrowing as, as we are, so they're less exposed in that sense. But also, that's about the level that many of those countries were at before the financial yes. crisis. So the United States was at 35% net debt to GDP, uh, the federal government. Uh, directly before the crisis, and then within a few years it was up at 75% uh, and now at 80%. So um, that's the thing. Things can get out of control quickly, and that has all sorts of flow-on effects. That unfortunately, they, they, I say unfortunately, they, they take a long time to flow out, and so that means that the causality is difficult for people to identify. But one of the ways countries have handled that, and in fact many people now kind of think, may think, well, maybe debt isn't so bad, is because central banks have responded by... Uh, cutting interest rates, cutting their policy rates, short-term interest rates so low. So you now have a situation in which you, know, you have negative interest rates for long-term bonds in many parts of Europe, extremely low rates in, uh, in America, and now also in Australia. And that will have you know, all sorts of long-term consequences. First of all, it tremendously undermines the incentive to save. The, you know, the, the incentive for thrift and self-reliance is much reduced, which is a damaging thing, I think, in the long run. It's also undermined the incentive for governments themselves to, to get back into balance and start paying down some of those debts. At some point, someone has to repay those debts. But the trouble is, by having interest rates so low, the cost of holding those debts at the moment is, is very low. And so politicians, you know, have to make a, they, they make a calculation. They have to say, do I take all the risks of trying to make the difficult decisions to actually reduce some people's benefits or, uh, you know, or, or uh, have to put off tax cuts or whatever? to, to um, reduce that debt, uh, well, it's not actually costing you very much at the moment. Whereas in the past, in the 1980s, say, uh, even the 1990s, you know, when you, when you in the early days of the Howard government introduced those tough budgets to try to um, remove the deficit, it was not only because there was an appreciation that you don't want to fall too far into debt, but also a sense, an appreciation that actually the interest costs were very high. They were. And so you had to, had to deal with this. Central banks, unfortunately, one of the things they've done is they've removed that pressure. And so now, suddenly you find, unsurprisingly, that politicians all around the Western world, indeed all around the world, um, are starting to discover that maybe they don't want to take those difficult decisions. And that's a real worry. It's very bad in the long run. Because what we're doing is engaging in, to use a term that I've often used, forgive me if I've overdone it, but intergenerational theft. Mm -hmm. This is going to come against our children. They won't have the same opportunities. They'll have tax burdens that, um, I, I'd be really worried to be a young Brit today looking at the future and wondering how I was going to support all of those debts and the unfunded liabilities looking after an aging population. But to come back to Australia, uh, we need to be responsible for future generations. The very title of your book and its opening emphasis on better outcomes for people points to your conviction that we need to get it right for Australians in the future. You've learned a lot over the last 12 months, uh, 12 years or so, looking at government very closely. What's happened to the policy formulation process that has led to this inability 
to fix these problems? Well, that in a sense is the worrying thing, and that's also part of the, the genesis for writing this book. My, my sense is that the public policy debate has become a lot worse in Australia, and that's at, at the political level, but also at the, at the national level in terms of the op-ed pages of the uh, main you know, uh, newspapers and so forth in the discussions that occur on television and so forth. Uh, there are a range of factors. I mean, I, I think at the governmental level, there's actually been a hollowing out of the public service, I, I believe. The, the quality and depth of the advice and the innovativeness of the advice that's coming up to governments, um, my judgment would be it's not nearly as good as it used to be. Uh, but on top of that, so I think the whole debate about public policy has become much less uh, much less worthwhile, much less is, is, is not helping us to form good solutions to the problems we face. And there are a range of features of that debate that I think have come to irritate me. One is the, the, the general vacuity. It's become much more common for people just to call for reform. Maybe this is one of the troubles of having a period where you've had good, good reform outcomes. People just think they just need to call for reform. Let's have microeconomic reform or macro, you know, um, whatever, industrial relations reform. Uh, and then you just as long you make as somebody the call. else does it. That's right, that's right. You make the call and then you walk away, and that doesn't advance the debate at all. Uh, so you have that problem, you have a lack of a coherence in people's policy thinking, or thinking about policy issues also. So people, there's a tendency often these days, I think, to focus on one issue and then think, oh, we must do this, and not reflect that at the same time other people are saying, here's another issue over here, we must do this. But your policy proposal over here might be going to make things much worse over here. And I mean, to give a couple of examples, say, um, uh, you know, both parties profess to be very concerned about housing affordability in Australia. And it's fair, it's, it's a their point that housing prices have gone up enormously since the since mid-2012, even with the correction we've seen since mid-2017, you know, more than 50% higher in, in Sydney. And yet a large part of what's driven that has been a massive increase in demand, heavily driven by increased immigration. And yet both parties, at the same time as saying we're terribly concerned about housing affordability, say we need to keep an extraordinarily fast, by international standards, extraordinarily fast immigration program. Uh, another good example is what's, what goes on with energy prices. At the same time as parties talk about manufacturing jobs and how we need to you know, support and restore Australian manufacturing industry and make sure we support those manufacturing jobs, both parties remain committed to uh, renewable energies policies that are driving up electricity prices that are causing lots of Australian manufacturers to relocate their production facilities overseas. The irony of that, of course, is that you get what's called emissions leakage if you're not careful. Absolutely. You make the global yeah. problem worse yes. while you bring your own yeah. emissions down. Yes. And it does worry me to highlight what you're saying is that there's a lack of focus on the raw facts in each of these cases so that people can make realistic and informed decisions about the policy options before them. In other words, there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of yelling, but there's a substantial lack of focus on the real costs and opportunities in each of the policy choices. Yes, both the, both the proper debate about the costs and the opportunities and also a proper understanding of exactly what the implications of particular policy will be. So to, as you say, with, the, with something like the, the climate change debate and discussion about emissions, I don't personally think this is nearly remotely as important as lots of people say it is, but let's presume that you people think it is important, then you would think you'd care about what the total global emissions would yeah, be. Because so you'd it's think a global problem. That's right, suppose it's a global problem. So you'd think it doesn't help mm. if you take an Australian firm that's subject to strong environmental regulation and cause its production facilities to be relocated to somewhere, say, over in China or somewhere else where the environmental regulation is much less strict and where the emissions are likely to, be, to produce a certain quantity of things are likely to be much higher. In a rational, sensible world, that would provoke a debate 
that took that into account and also said, for example, therefore, that it's indeed the whole basis, for example, of looking at admissions based on production within a country is a bit of a crazy approach. After all, if, if to take Australia's case, if Australians continue to consume exactly the same things that involve exactly the same emissions, but they're all produced overseas, that hasn't done any good at all uh, in terms of global emissions. So what matters is the emissions, uh, you know, carbon dioxide and other emissions that are implicit in the things that we consume that, and invest, uh, not in what we produce. And yet that has been the, the completely opposite approach has undergirded the entire approach to discussion of emissions for the past 30 years. The Kyoto Accord and the Paris Accord are entirely based on production, which is just completely wrong-headed. I, I, I must say, to get something off my chest that really, really frustrates me, is that you hear uh, talk of, oh, the big dirty emitters, we're going to hit them. Who turns on the power switch? Who's the user of the power? You get the same thing in farming. The farmers waste all that water. The consumers of the water are the people who go to Woolworths. Yes, yeah. People don't understand that a, a glass of orange juice yeah. has the equivalent of about seven glasses of water in it to make that one half, small glass of water. Uh, a man's suit has hundreds of thousands of litres of water from the sheep growing the wool through to putting it on your back. Uh, it's not the farmer who's the end user of that water. It's we as consumers. These matters are so much more complex than people let on. So I think we can agree that a big part of the problem is in fact the way we debate the issues. We can't get good public policy, as I often say, out of a bad debate. But you hone in on many of those policy failures and come up with, I think, some very clear thinking that should be appealing to Australians across the political divide, to be fair. You come from a certain perspective, we all do, but I think you're ideas can be adapted, examined, adapted, played with from all sides. Can you work me through some of your thinking around what Australia should do now, apart from the obvious, which is restore the quality of the national debate? No, well, that, that's essential. One of the things I have particularly tried to do with this book is, um, is to think about what I thought were those problems with the debate and then try to uh, concretely address them. So in particular, provide concrete options across a range of areas in a way that would create a coherent uh, policy. And so the, the different areas of, of policy that I've looked at that I thought are, are vital if you're going to perform, create a sort of overall agenda to improve the economy, range across you know, the housing market and immigration, um, areas around strengthening economic growth, so strengthening productivity, so higher education reform, federal state relations reform, um, energy prices, which we've touched on, which are critical, and then areas that are critical for making the Australian economy less vulnerable to shocks. So uh, that includes in particular budget repair and then issues around the, the structure and operation of monetary policy and, and financial system regulation. So I try to cover all of those different areas, but I try to be different in this book in that in looking at each one, I'm I've been anxious to say, I don't want to be able to be accused of just saying, you know, saying, oh, we must do something, here's a problem, we must do something about it. I want to provide a specific suggestion, having worked through what I assess to be the, the issues, then say, how could you try to solve those in practice? To go again back to something you were saying earlier, it's important to be pragmatic. Say, how could I try to solve those, that issue in practice? Here's a specific concrete proposal. And also, have I managed to craft a proposal that I think stands any chance of actually 
passing muster in the parliament. Because again, another of the problems with our debate is where you, know, you can say, oh, we should do this. And even sometimes people will say, oh, we should do X, Y, and Z. And they are specific, but they're specific about something that has, has absolutely no chance whatsoever of, of, of ever becoming reality. So that's been my focus in this book, actually, is to try to say, let's focus, look, look at all these different areas, which are the ones that I've identified as, I think, the key things where, where policies need to be put in place to address core issues that are affecting Australian families and Australian workers and then try to propose problem solutions that will actually be able to pass muster and be potentially politically popular. And when I say that, that, that requires you to go to your point about not being, um, not being doctrinaire on one side or other of the political um, divide. I'm undoubtedly, I, I am conservative in my disposition uh, in the sense that, you know, and what I mean by that is I, you know, I have certain core views that, you know, uh, excessive debt, I think, is a bad thing. You need to, you know, someone has to pay. If we borrow money now, it's unfair to require future generations to repay for things. I think it's fundamentally important to try to give every Australian the opportunity to, to have a job and a good job, and that's fundamentally a much better outcome than putting people on welfare. Things like that, though, actually, they, in some ways they're often thought to be controversial to say things like that today, but they used to be absolutely core positions of the Hawke Labor Party. Uh, so in that sense, I think my goal has been to try to provide practical solutions, many of which I think will, could easily, um, or some of which at any rate could easily uh, be picked up by, by either side of politics. Uh, it just depends how much people are prepared to argue for the, for the importance of the issues. I've always remembered something that the late Paddy McGuinness, a very gifted journalist and economist, as I recall, wrote at the time of the debate about the introduction of a GST in Australia. And he made the very simple observation. He said, the debate should not be about whether we need to move to a value-added tax system. We plainly do. The debate should be about who can design the best one. And he's underlying, he was underlining, I think, a really important point. There are quite a few things that we need to know, uh, that, that, that we need to do in this country. Both sides of politics know in their heart of hearts they need to be done. The question there should be who best and how to rather than whether to. I, I think that's true. I, I would put in a word of caution in that sometimes the fact that two side, both sides of politics agree on something doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. And I, my classic example of this is the moment there's a bipartisan agreement that immigration, the rate of immigration, which, which was already at an extremely high level under the Howard government and under the Hawke-Keating government, it was, uh, check the figures in, in my book, and you know, we had the fastest pace of immigration uh, of any developed country, any OECD country, with the exception of Israel, because it had a massive influx of, of people from the former Soviet Union. If you look over the past 25 years, over that 25-year period. So we had a very rapid pace. And then, starting late in the Howard government, especially ramped up during the Rudd government, we doubled that pace. And that's created a whole lot of ramifications in terms of weak wages growth, because there's been a massive influx of additional people into the you know, huge addition to the supply of in the labour market. Uh, it's added hugely to housing prices. So it's having all sorts of implications, and yet both sides of politics remain strongly committed to this for reasons that I don't think reflect the national interest, but reflect cold political calculations <laughs> of particular factions of those parties. So I put that word of caution in, having said which, it is true that there are various, you know, there, there are lots of things where there, there could perfectly happily be sensible debate about things, and sometimes we have arguments uh, when it's entirely unnecessary. You have arguments for the sake of having arguments, and Again, to give a good example from recent times, the Labor Party has a, has a very proud history on um, pension reform, actually. Um, it was the Keating government that started, sorry, in terms of um, 
altering the age pension to reflect the fact that life expectancy has risen so so dramatically. So when the age pension was introduced, it was set at a, you know, access at age 65 for men at a time when I think the average life expectancy was um, about 59 something, you know, it, was, it was below 60. And that age never changed, even as the average life expectancy of men rose into the 80s. And that's not a sustainable thing. You can't go on and on to the point where a huge and huge proportion of people's lives are eligible for the pension. So the Keating government actually introduced reforms, first of all, to align the female pension age with the male pension age. And the Rudd government, to give it credit, I am critical of many things about the Rudd government, but the Rudd government introduced an important reform in 2009 to raise the pension age from 65 to 67. Uh, and that was supported by the, the coalition at the time. But then when the Abbott government in the 2014-15 budget uh, made a proposal to just continue the same gradual increase that the Rudd government had, had, imposed, had, had prescribed, to gradually continue that to, a, to a age 70 by the mid-2030s, now, it's fine to argue maybe 70 is too far or whatever. You could have had a good debate, to your point, a good debate about what exactly is the right thing to do. Maybe we should stop at 69, whatever. But instead, actually, the Labour Party's position, uh, they just decided to have a big argument about that because it was politically um, advantageous at the time. And so instead of getting a further good reform, even a compromise one, uh, we had a silly, you know, silly debate which was completely contrary to the uh, principles that the Labour Party had pursued and greatly to its credit had pursued for the pre previous 20 years. So it would be great if on some of these issues where there is appreciation of it, bipartisan appreciation of a problem, you could just have a sensible debate about how best to solve it rather than turning it into a political football. Uh, <clears throat> but to have a good debate, you need a lot of information. Now, just to unpack for a moment, there'll be a lot of interest, I would think, uh, in what you have to say about immigration because a lot of people are talking about it and what it means. My understanding is that there's probably a lot of legitimacy to the view that our GDP growth has really been held at quite high levels, no recession for a long time because of that growth. But what it's disguising is that per person GDP has been static or slipping. In other words, people in the community feel that because their wages are not rising. They've been flatlining while asset prices have been going through the roof, i.e. your houses. I think when I left school, I've got a fair bit of grey hair, in the mid-70s, the cost of an average Australian house worked out at around four times annual average earnings, whereas now it's 11 or 12 and more in Sydney and Melbourne. That's a startling rise over my lifetime. It means my children have a completely different set of opportunities in terms of a roof over their head to to what I was fortunate enough to enjoy, and I thought it was expensive enough at the time. But these, um, the, the, unpacking these conundrums, so high immigration makes GDP growth look stronger than it feels yeah. per individual in the community, and they're probably right? Well, they are right. In fact, the data show that uh, under the Howard government, uh, GDP per person rose at almost 2.5% a year, which admittedly is a very rapid pace. Normally, you know, that, would, that was an extremely um, good general outcome. But for the corresponding period since then, the dozen years since the Howard government, it's risen at 0.9%. So that's, that's well less than half the pace. And that, that's what matters to people. After all, it, it, it doesn't matter to the Australian people to prop up a measured growth figure by jamming more people in. The analogy I think of is, imagine if Australia were to annex New Zealand tomorrow, well, we'd end up with a much better rugby team, which would probably be helpful. But no one, you, you would hope no one would be so ridiculous to say as to say, oh, that's a great thing because our economy grew by 15% this quarter. 
And yet that would be you know, 15%, whatever the appropriate figure would be, it's roughly that. Um, you know, no one would be saying, isn't it fantastic, what a great growth outcome. And yet, in a sense, that's actually what we've been doing, albeit slightly more slowly, over the past dozen years, even for a time before that. The, over, the, over the past dozen years, you know, we've taken in uh, about two Adelaide's worth of population. We've taken in, if, if we keep the same pace of immigration going for another seven or eight years, we will effectively, in the, in the space of two decades, have taken in the entire, an entire New Zealand population in the space of just two decades. An entire New Zealand population just in new immigrants, leave aside the new children that are then born to those immigrants and so forth. So that's fine. That may or may not be a good thing. You can argue about all the pros and cons in terms of all the cultural, social, economic, other implications, but you should never say it's a good thing just because measured GDP has been increased as a result of that. And so, yeah, we should be focusing on what are the actual outcomes for people? What are their outcomes in terms of their wages growth, which is you know, a proxy for their living standards, which is the GDP per capita figures that I was mentioning before. What's happened? What are the implications for housing markets, housing prices, the capacity of people to get into the, um, you know, to, to get in uh, to the market, be able to start a family. Um, uh, again, one of the reasons that's often advanced for why we need this extraordinarily rapid immigration program is to prevent aging of the population because immigrants uh, tend to be, on average, our immigration program is skewed to be people typically in their 20s and 30s. And so they are younger than the average of the population. That is helpful in the short term, but it's not helpful in the long term because they themselves age uh, and unless in a Ponzi-like way, you keep ratcheting up the size of the immigration program, you don't end up, you end up almost no different in terms of your aging on a 50 or 100 year horizon. So you need to think carefully through the actual implications. And that's what I try to do in my book and actually understand all these linkages between the demography, the issues, the economic implications for struggling families in terms of housing and wages and so forth, uh, the implications for, in general for economic growth and job creation and so forth. Well, Andrew, I think you've just given us a fascinating insight into the depth of your thinking and its clarity. Uh, and the purpose of all good books is to promote a debate. doesn't mean people have to automatically agree with it, but they've got to come to grips with what you're saying. We need to end the sloganeering. We need to engage in ideas. We need to go back to the facts. We need to proceed with reason if the West, including Australia, is to find its way forward. Um, uh, I'm certainly recommending the book. I note that... Uh, John Howard has written a commendation for it, former treasurer Peter Costello, the nation's longest serving treasurer. Uh, and so is Neil Ferguson, the world's most prominent economic historian. So you're backed by some people who I think have real credibility uh, on the subject of how we manage our future best. I hope it sells well, I really do, because I think it's accessible, it's well-researched and it's understandable. Well done. Thank you, John. That's very kind. And you know, I, I hope people will read it and I hope they'll, they'll be able to find it interesting and accessible, as you say. And, and most of all, because it has concrete ideas, I hope they'll be able to latch onto those ideas and have a good debate, whether you agree or disagree. Let's, let's hope, hope it can spark a good debate. Big ideas and big thinking are really important. We need to expand our minds, stop the business of closing them down. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.